If you have your Bible with you, please open it to the book of Galatians. We will be looking today at Galatians 1, uh, verses 11 through 24. Today is, as we have talked about already in Sunday school, our time of celebrating the Reformation. It's Reformation Sunday, and on Tuesday we will celebrate the 500th anniversary of Luther doing something which appeared uh, both to him and to others at the time fairly innocuous. He posted his theses on the Wittenberg door. This was not the first time that this action had been taken, and it was not the first time, it wasn't even an unusual circumstance, because this is just how scholars in that day would would post something that they wanted to discuss with other people. As a matter of fact, Luther didn't think much of these 95 theses. He didn't think that this would garner much attention. He thought much more of his 97 theses that he wrote before. And he posted them on the door, which was attacking scholasticism. And he thought that this would, would get the ire of people and it would, it would ruffle their feathers, so to speak. And then he could bring in his teaching on the justification by faith. But, as a scholar, Justo Gonzalez says, the 97 theses were met with a yawn. The 95 theses were not. Originally posted in Latin, it wasn't until a German translation of them was promulgated throughout both Germany and then wider in Christendom that Luther became famous. It is this Sunday that we celebrate that. We celebrate the great life of Luther that we've already heard about and his trip to become a lawyer. His dad wanted him to be a lawyer. His dad was a very stern man, had worked his way up from nothing, and had paid a lot of money to secure Luther a spot to be educated as a lawyer. Luther, who didn't really want to become a lawyer, was nearly struck by lightning. And so on the ground, as he laid fearful for his life, prayed to St. Anne to deliver him. And he said he would become a monk if she delivered him. And lo, he was delivered. Now that's probably not as gracious as he makes it seem because he didn't want to be a lawyer anyway. So it was part excuse, it was part uh, divine inspiration that he was able to skip out on being a lawyer and he went into the monkhood, which is probably not how we're supposed to say that, but we're Baptists, so we just make up words. So he went into the monkhood. Now, when he went into the monastery, people immediately saw his genius and his brilliance, and they said, you should be a priest. And so they taught him how to read Latin, and they taught him how to read Greek, and they taught him all that he would need to do to be able to teach others and to perform the rites of Catholic Mass. Little did they know that this was going to be one of the great downfalls of the Catholic Church. Luther began to teach And he began to see the goodness of justification by faith. He taught through the Psalter many, many times. As a monk, he he knew it by heart. And so as he began to teach through it, he began to see certain things, especially as Doug pointed out this morning in Sunday school in Psalm 22. But it wasn't until he got to meditating on Romans 1, 16 through 17, that he was actually awakened to the truth of the gospel. This is a passage from Luther's writings that we have read before, but it stands especially today to read these words again. This is Romans 1, 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, writes Paul, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther wrote this. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. 
I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteousness, the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if, indeed, it is not enough that miserable sinners, eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity, by the law of the Decalogue, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel, and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. He read the righteousness being revealed from heaven as the justice of God being revealed. He read that the gospel was nothing but God coming to punish sin. And he saw himself as a sinner and he saw this as even more oppression than he knew before. But God didn't leave him there. Fortunately for us and for Luther, God revealed to him what he meant by his righteousness being revealed by the gospel and through Jesus Christ. Luther would go on to write, At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There, a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon, I ran through the scriptures from memory. I also found in other terms an analogy as the work of God, that is, what God does in us, the power of God with which he makes us strong, the wisdom of God with which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. Luther was awoken to the fact that it is God who does all for us that he does not have to strive any more for his salvation, but that God freely bestows it upon him. Far from standing under the judgment of God, then in Romans 1.17, Paul found his freedom there. Luther as well. And he realized quite clearly that he was no longer under any obligation to earn salvation, that he wasn't under any obligation to prove himself righteous, no matter how much he might confess, no matter how many good works he might do, no matter how many Hail Marys he might say, no matter how much penance he does, he is no, not able in any way, shape, or form to earn justification, but it is freely given in Christ, that he is righteous only because Christ has granted him righteousness. Luther's testimony of how God led him, of how God shaped him and formed him and sent him out into the world was an amazing testimony. Luther was by all accounts a great man, although he was at times not a good one. Paul, likewise, has just an immense, immense testimony of how God worked in him to bring that story of justification to the church. 
there's no doubt as you read through Galatians, you can understand that Paul himself was under attack by the agitators. If you're going to undermine Paul's gospel, one of the ways you do this is by undermining Paul. And it seems, based on what Paul says here, that part of their undermining of Paul was to say that his gospel is really just a borrowed gospel. He, he got it from men. He, he, he learned it from men. He learned it from Jerusalem, even. He went to Jerusalem. He learned it from Jerusalem. And therefore, we're coming from Jerusalem with the true gospel from Jerusalem. We're coming with the true gospel that you must be circumcised to be saved. We've talked about this before, but it, it needs to be said again. Paul here is defending his apostleship. He is defending himself against those attacks, but it's not to support his own authority, but it is because if his apostleship is not understood, then his gospel will not be believed. He seeks here to support his apostleship because it supports the gospel. And so as we turn then to these verses and we read them, see how Paul displays the truth of the gospel through these. Let us read then Galatians 1, verses 11 through 24, and hear the testimony of of Paul's life. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroyed, and they glorified God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Paul here is seeking to defend his own apostleship from the charge that he simply received it from men. And, and there's a whole bunch of logical connectors here. So in verse 11, we begin with that statement of four. And so what is he trying to support there? He's trying to support what he said in verse 10. Am I trying to please God or am I trying to please men? If, if I'm trying to please men, I cannot be a servant of Christ. I'm only here trying to please God. There's sort of a common sense approach here. As he calls down an anathema on those who would preach a gospel and it goes against the gospel that he had already preached to the Galatians, he says, oh, I'm clearly not trying to appease men. But he's going to back that up even more. And so he says in verse 11 that the gospel that is preached by him is not man's gospel nor did he receive it from any man. But I received it through a revelation of Christ. Well, that's handy. It's pretty easy when people doubt the truthfulness of what you say to just simply claim that you got it from God. People get oracles all the time. Their Cheerios align in such a way that it looks like the Mother Mary. If you touch the milk, it will heal you. Their toast has a picture of Jesus on it. That breakfast was awesome this morning, friend. 
right? You've, hear, you've heard stories like that, relics that people think because it has the appearance of something good and holy that you can come to it and be healed by it. It's easy then to simply appeal to God and say, no, no, you don't understand, I got it from God. How many times have people explained away their sinfulness in reference to the fact that they were okay before God, that they heard it from God, that it's okay because God has sanctioned this because he has told me. Before Paul, this is not just something that has happened to him. It is his experience of the truth of the gospel. And we are called, therefore, first of all, to experience the truth of the gospel within these verses because he goes on to say this. He's going to explain. You see that for again there in verse 13. He's explaining again. How is it that I am not pleasing men? And how am I being a servant of God? Well, I didn't get the gospel from men is first. How do I know you didn't get the gospel from men? Well, I received it from Christ. How do we know that? He says this. For you've heard how of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own Acts 9 records Saul this way. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He says, you heard of the fact that I persecuted the church of God, that while Stephen was being stoned, I stood there and approved and allowed people to place their coats at my feet. I breathed out threats and murder against them. I had hatred in my heart, and if I could, I would have stomped out every single person who believed in Christ. This was clearly a well-known story. It's not something that he is here now making up for the first time. He says, you know of this story. You've heard of my former life in Judaism You go back and you read the passage in Acts. It doesn't sound as though Paul was sort of trepidatious about this, as though it was a call that was placed upon him that he did with hesitancy. He talks about the zeal with which he persecuted the church. He was good at persecuting the church. He excelled at it, and it was something that he seems to have loved as well. And what's more, it wasn't just good for his heart, it was good for his career. He goes on and talks about how this zeal allowed him to advance in Judaism beyond many of my own age. I was so zealous for the traditions that were passed down that people who stood against those traditions needed to suffer. They needed to be put away. And because I showed myself as extremely, extremely zealous for these traditions, so much so that I would persecute the church. He said, that brought with it a tremendous amount of career success. Other people who were in my position were not advancing as far as I was. I was a wonderkin. So, what happens to Paul? Why would someone in his position go from persecutor to preacher? Why would that happen? What is it about Paul that makes that transition? We've talked about this in terms of his testimony toward the truthfulness of the gospel, and it's important to know that this is helpful for us in a number of ways. Listen, we, we preach the gospel, and the gospel is simple to preach. The gospel is straightforward and easy, but when we start to talk about the ins and outs of the gospel, we understand that there are difficult things embedded even in the most simple truths. As we talked about 
in our community groups, when we read Athanasius, we talked last week, when we think about the Trinity, some of these things are incredibly hard to wrap your mind around. Frankly, it's hard, hard to sink your teeth into the resurrection. It's a difficult thing. For us, it's difficult because we are so involved in a scientific understanding of the world that we know that resurrections just don't happen. And, and because we've been so formed by science, we, we kind of want proof for these things. We, we want evidence. We want to be able to repeat the experiment. But that's the problem with, with miracles. We can't conjure them. We can't repeat them. It's difficult to believe in that. For Romans and Greeks, it would have been difficult for a whole other reason. They were, had no problem with, with miracles. Miracles can happen. The gods can intercede in in events all the time. Frankly, there was a number of things going on around them that they had no explanation for that they thought were miraculous. They did have a problem, however, with the idea that a man would want to get back up out of the grave. Why put on flesh? Why, when you've already attained spirithood, would you want to come back as human and fleshy? That didn't make any sense to them. We should have a good deal of sympathy for people who struggle with the Christian faith. Chuck Colson, who was an aide in the Nixon administration, had left a very lucrative law practice to go with Nixon to Washington, D.C. And when Nixon's administration started to fall apart, he talked about how people were willing to lie for Nixon because they had put so much into him, they didn't want to see that thing fail, and so they were willing to lie for him until, until it got so unraveled that they knew that they were going to go down with the ship. And so the rats came out. And people were willing to lie, he said, if they thought they could get away with it. They were willing to lie if they thought that what they were saying was true. But what people were not willing to do was willing to lie for something they knew was false where there was no gain. No one's willing to do that. You lie because you think you can get away with it. Once you know you can't, you abandon it. What did Paul gain from this? Behind door number one, you have success a career doing what your heart desires, even if that is threatening and murdering other people, you're good at it, your heart likes it, it you have zeal for it, you wake up in the morning refreshed to go out and persecute some more. And not only that, but it gives you success. You have worldly success. Everything is sitting there for Paul, and in one instant it goes away. And behind curtain number two, what does Paul get? We could even read for Paul at that moment some of his future writings. If you go just basically one page over to 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writes this, beginning in verse 23. I have far greater labors, far more imprisonments. With countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Behind door number one, worldly success, comfort, 
and a zeal for that which lies behind you. All of the traditions of your fathers. Door number two, alienation from your people. They will hate you. The Gentiles will hate you. The world will seem pinned against you. You will suffer mercilessly. And you will have anxiety that all of the work that you're doing is going to be tossed away. Why choose door two? He chooses door two because it's true. Because that is true. Because the gospel is true. Because it was truly revealed to him. People will lie for a number of reasons. They will not lie for that which they know is true when it will hurt them. Paul was willing to give up everything, everything, because he thought the gospel true, because he thought the gospel that he was going to take to the Gentiles was true. This should be something that people see in your life. You're not called to give up what Paul was called to give up. It is an extreme case, there's, there's no doubt. But don't think that the gospel hasn't called you to give up things. You will have to stand firm in the gospel against family, and many of you have. You will have to stand firm in the gospel against coworkers. You will have to stand firm in the gospel at a loss of employment, sometimes at the loss of gaining status within a company. It certainly calls you to give up your free time. It certainly calls for you to give up certain things that you would spend money on to spend them a different way. It should reorient everything in your life in some way, shape, or form. It should cost you. This is not something you sacrifice because you're trying to gain salvation, but it does mean that you sacrifice because of your salvation. And what is more, it is a great sign, friends, of the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is not only located in its people, but the truth of the gospel shines brightly when God's people are changed by his calling of them. Paul experienced the truth of the gospel. And so have we. If you believed in Christ, having experienced the truth of the gospel, you should live a life that is changed. That will mean that you will suffer, but that is okay. You will gladly do so for the truth of the gospel. Second, we are to experience the power of the gospel. We have to experience the power of the gospel. What would change a man like this? What is it exactly about the gospel that changes him? It can't just be that it's true. There's a whole bunch of truth out there. And even if it were true, Paul could say that he wanted to do this, but we all want to do certain things. How many people in here have started a diet or an exercise plan and haven't carried on with it, even with the best of intentions? You can want something and want it to be true and not be able to follow through with it. What empowers Paul to make this huge change in life? It is nothing less than the gospel and it is nothing less than the power of God. We talk here about the sovereignty of God in all things and I want to be very clear about the sovereignty of God in all things. This is not a sovereignty that we simply give lip service to. We think that God is sovereign over all things from the falling of a leaf to a mudslide that kills dozens of people in California. From a small wave lapping up onto the shore to tsunamis that will wipe out villages. We believe that God is sovereign over all things. Listen to how Paul speaks of God's sovereignty in setting him apart here. But when he who had set me apart before I was born. 
It sounds a lot like prophets from old. Matter of fact, Paul is likely saying that he is like these prophets of old. Isaiah 49, 1 and 2, he says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. Jeremiah 1, 4 and 5. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it however he wants to. Now the important thing to realize about what Paul is doing here is to realize that that means not only was he appointed to be an apostle to the Gentiles, but it also means that God had appointed him to do all of those things that he did before he became an apostle to the Gentiles. The persecution of the church, the rage and the rampaging Paul, all of that was to show forth the greatness of God in the gospel in ways that no one else could How best to show the power of the gospel than taking one who seems most dead set against that gospel and changing him forever. And not just changing him so that he supports it, but changing him so that he is willing to give away all of his life to be crushed by the gospel. Jesus knew this before he even selected Paul. He talks about the sufferings that Paul will have to endure for his name when Ananias says, listen, I don't don't know, Lord, if you know who this Paul guy is, but... He's a pretty mean character. I don't know that I should go and heal him. And Jesus says, no, no, no. He's going to suffer much for my name. I have no doubt that that was relayed with not a little bit of cherishment by Ananias to Paul. Paul knew that he was going to suffer. Paul knew that these things were coming to him. Yet nevertheless, he also knew that this was a display of the power of God. He goes on to say, I did not immediately consult with anyone, the ESV's, Not terribly good there. I didn't consult with flesh and blood. He did consult, not with just anyone, but he consulted with the Spirit. Not with flesh and blood, but with the Spirit he consulted. And then he began to preach immediately, going from persecutor to preacher in the blink of an eye. He does this because God is working his power out in him. We think of the the power of God in these monumental ways. We think of the power of God in the Big Bang or in the burning of a sun in nuclear explosions or the power that is found in, in the way we describe galaxies, which we put numbers on. You can, you can tack numbers down on a page to describe how many jewels of energy there are found in a sun and, and things like that. Numbers that are meaningless. Our brains have no way of conceiving of that type of power. And that type of power we know is only the use of other power. It's just a conversion. That's all it is. And God is powerful in that he brings forward power only by speaking. And so we see these sorts of conversions, we see these sorts of testimonies as a display of God's power. Many of you have, have known people who have tremendous testimonies. You, you've heard of stories of people who were alcoholics and then once they've believed, their desire for any sort of alcohol departs from them. I've heard stories of people who were changed in the blink of an eye. You hear stories like C.S. Lewis, right? Who gets on a bus, he says, knowing I'm not a Christian, by the time I get to the zoo, I knew I was a Christian and I don't know what the difference was. There are people 
who have talked to me before who would argue and say that they experienced guilt and, and sin upon themselves that was crushing them. Literally, it was, it was weighing on them, not in the sort of metaphorical sense, but they said that when they said that they believed Christ, when they finally confessed their sins and confessed the name of Jesus Christ, that they literally felt a weight lift off of them. But know this, that is the testimony of a few. That is not the testimony of a many. And lest you be confused and you think that these are the testimonies where God has displayed his power, God has no less displayed his power in you. If your testimony isn't great, in the sense that it's not miraculous, you didn't have a miracle explode out of the sky, you didn't have a, a tumor lifted out of you by miracle means, Jesus didn't show up and heal your hand or show up and imprint his face in your toast. You don't have any sort of a, a miraculously given testimony like that about your conversion. It doesn't mean that the conversion that God has yielded in you is any less powerful. It is a manifestation of the very power of God. You were dead and you are now alive. God's power is not just seen in explosions. It is seen in faithfulness. Faithfulness that, that he has suffered with you a long time, that he has kept you from falling into the idolatry that so many people run in before they're converted. It is God's power that does that. It is God's power that allows you to be grown up and raised up in a Christian home. It is God's power that keeps you safe from a lot of the things that other people have to walk through before they know of the gospel of Christ but it is no less God's power and you are no less converted because of it. Don't be ashamed of your testimony. It is the power of God for your salvation. Also, we need to be very clear. And people are not like Jenga. You take out the little pieces and you, you know that it's about to fall over. You can see it wafting in the wind. Some of you were like that when you converted. You, you studied and you learned and you didn't really believe it and you kind of believed it and then all of a sudden things just kind of toppled over for you. And you can think that you need to get people up to a place where they're close. They've tasted of the things of God. They've tasted of the things of the church. They've, they've seen it. They've dabbled in it. They've studied it a little bit. And you think, well, they're very close. They're very close. Listen, God doesn't need any of that. God doesn't need them to be almost toppling over to convert them. They can be staunchly walking the other way, stomping their feet as a pouting kid the entire way, and God will take them by the nape of the neck and draw them into the light. Don't give up on people. Don't think that they need to be tottering for God's work to powerfully work in them. The walls of Jericho came down without a push, and God can convert anyone without even breaking a sweat. It is his spirit that works in people to do that. Continue to preach the gospel because the gospel is nothing less than the power of God. Lastly, let us also experience the unity of the gospel. If we experience the truth of the gospel and the power of the gospel, we should experience also the unity of the gospel. Paul goes on to talk about after three years, he did actually go up to Jerusalem. He, he's trying to be very honest with them here. He said, I, I didn't talk to anybody for a long time. After three years, he says, I finally did go up to Jerusalem. I will admit that. And, and he says, I will admit that for 15 days, I met with Peter. And we can 
understand that they probably didn't just talk about the weather for 15 days. They probably talked about the gospel. But the point is, I'd been preaching already out in Damascus and Arabia for or for three years before I even met with Cephas. And even then, I only met with him for 15 days. And even then, I didn't meet with any of the other apostles. He basically gives James a handshake and moves on. He doesn't even say he talks to him. He just says that he saw them. And he confirms that he's not lying. But this whole comment here, and especially about the churches in Judea that are in Christ, he didn't get to meet any of them. He didn't get to talk to them. He didn't get to learn from them. He didn't get to know them, and they didn't get to know him. He says, they don't know me in person. All they heard was that it was said, the one who was persecuting us is now preaching the faith that he tried to destroy. Listen, think of the incredible grace that is extended to him by Peter, by James, and these churches. They were the ones who appointed Stephen. They were the ones who thought of Stephen as a holy man. They were the ones who saw Paul standing there as Stephen was stoned and killed, rocks bouncing off of his head and off of his body until he was bludgeoned to death in front of them. They were the ones who suffered at the hands of Paul, not just threats, but certainly some of them being thrown in prison, having families ripped apart by this man. And then three years later, he disappears. Three years later, he shows up. And now all of a sudden, he's working for the gospel and not against the gospel. And these churches and these men require nothing out of Paul. There is no pound of flesh. There is no penance. There's no reparations for Paul to make for the people of Judea that he persecuted and made suffer at his own hands. They don't force him to make up for their broken families that happened because of him or the anxious nights that they had. They don't make Paul grovel. What do they do? They glorified God because of him. Immediate and total forgiveness. They knew that Paul was now working for the gospel. That didn't drive them to anger. It didn't drive them to frustration, but they glorified God because of it. We are not unified solely around doctrinal statements. We're not solely unified because we can agree on theology like the Trinity or Christology. We are not unified together even in a common mission out in the world to spread the gospel, but we are first and foremost unified because we are people forgiven by Christ and therefore we forgive others. Jesus is recorded as saying this in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Think of that as we read this parable from Matthew 18. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold 
with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave his debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me and I, I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In other words, love one another as I have loved you. And in anger, his master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This was the essence of what Paul himself is having played out before him. These people are willing to forgive him his past discretions, not, not wanting to see justice done. Why? Paul deserves to suffer for what he did. Paul deserves to pay them back for what has happened. Why don't they seek justice here? Because they're not so stupid as to think that justice hasn't already been served. They know that justice has been served. It's why Christ was crucified. There is no more justice. Justice has been wrought in Paul's case. If they desired Paul to pay them back for what he made them suffer, all they would be doing is requiring five denarii when they have been forgiven 10,000 talents. A penance, a, a small sum, when they have been forgiven a lifetime's worth of wages. No, they know, they know that forgiveness is extended because they have been forgiven much. They love as Christ has loved them. The gospel embodies within it the sense of unity within the church because it gives, it gives to us grace and it gives to us forgiveness so that we can then have ground to give grace and forgiveness to all others. Experience the truth of the gospel, the power of the gospel, and you will undoubtedly experience the unity of the gospel. The gospel is good news. It's good news because Christ saves sinful people. He doesn't save the righteous. They get to stand all on their own. You think that you're good enough? Fight for it. Do everything you can. The warning that Christ and the scriptures give to you is that you will fail. You are not good enough to stand on your own. You will always fail the judgment of God. Yet, Christ has come to save sinners. It is the good news that Christ has died for our sin and he has been raised for our justification, both to take away the penalty of our sins and the overwhelming punishment of our sins from the world. It is good news because it doesn't put the burden on us to overcome our sins, which includes, by the way, our inability to rightly believe. God 
does this for us. This was, in fact, Luther's great rediscovery. God freely gives to us everything we need for salvation. He freely bestows it upon those who confess Jesus Christ. Yet that doesn't mean that we are not called to believe in the gospel. Listen, Crossway is here as a witness to this gospel. It's truthfulness, it's power, and it's unity. If you doubt, if you wonder whether this is true, look to the scriptures themselves. Look to what Paul writes, what Matthew writes, what Luke writes, and what John writes. Read for them yourselves. And if you don't believe them, look at the person next to you. If they believe, if they are truly converted by God, they are people who have experienced the truth and the power and the unity of the gospel themselves. They themselves are a witness to the truthfulness of what we proclaim in the gospel. They are sinners, no doubt. And they are sinners that deserve hell, every one of them. And they are sinners who have been saved by grace. This we proclaim to you and to ourselves. We serve a wonderful, merciful Savior. That, indeed, is the gospel truth. Let us pray. Father, you are kind to us in giving us salvation and giving your Son so that we might be saved. Your, your wrath, as it burned against us, was inescapable. There was nothing that we could do but die and suffer. All of our striving, all of our working was nothing but filthy rags to you. It was polluted in every way, shape, and form. What could we ever do to make ourselves right with you when you have always called us to love you with all of our minds, hearts, and souls, and bodies? You've called us to love you with everything we have, and any failure in that can never be overcome by loving you more because that love was always due to you in the first place. We were lost and without hope in the world. But even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. There is no good news compared to that news that you have provided for us a way of escape from your own wrath. You have provided for us a way that we can be remade in your image, that we can say goodbye to our sin, to the penalty of our sin, that we can say goodbye to the, the presence of sin in our lives as a ruling power over us, that we might thrust ourselves upon your mercy and your grace. That grace is indeed given to us in Jesus Christ. So we praise you this morning, Father, for the work that you've done through Christ to save us. And we pray that you will fortify us, that you will give us strength and send us with quick feet and mouths ready to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. For there are many who still suffer under sin. Let them know the good news that Jesus Christ has come to save them as well. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.